Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. This episode, we have Nia and Katie from Love in the Face, and I am so excited to share this conversation with you. It was such a great conversation. Before we dive in, I want to let you know the deconstructionnetwork.com is a completely free resource helping people that are deconstructing their faith, going through radical shifts in their faith, um, who may feel lonely. A lot of the time when we do this, um, we may lose friends, family, community. We lose our church. A lot of, a lot of things um, are lost in this process. And more often than not, the hardest thing that we lose is our relationships. And so the deconstructionnetwork.com, free resource helping people connect with people locally that are going through a similar journey. And so do check that out if that feels like you might be um, one of those people, one of those people that feel lonely, isolated, um, and just, yeah, struggling in this journey. And it's, there's no shame in that. It's a really real hard journey to go through. And you don't have to go through it alone. This is one of the biggest movements on the earth right now. It's just one of the fastest growing spiritual movements is people leaving institutionalized church, evolving out of Christianity. Um, and so there are plenty of people in this world that would love to meet one another and be friends and the deconstructionnetwork.com is a great way to do it. Um, all right, let's dive in. Nia and Katie, everyone. Great. So I do not know either of you at all. Um, I, I can't remember who it was that, um, recommended you guys. Was it? Yeah, it was. was it Hallie uh... Kim? No, no, it was one of your Instagram followers. Her name is Emily. And she just kind of like popped in and said, you should see these people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you guys, what what did you say? You you, you jumped in with something like, only if you're okay with, and then (laughs) you like, the most wild, extravagant, you know, description. I was like, these are my people. I love it. (laughs) I mean, that was like this much of the story too. You've got like... (laughs) The really condensed version of twenty years of kind of chaos. Yeah, at least to... you can condense. You know that's impressive. That shows <laughs> that you've you've done the work. If you can yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, I always think you know, like people people say like, oh, you know, if you can't describe what you do in like you know a sentence, then you still are figuring it out. Or if you can't, you know, describe this. Or if a five year old doesn't understand with anything i take an hour to explain um anything you know, even when i ask yeah, people questions on my podcast like. it takes me an hour um, yeah. you know? uh, but yeah. but that was amazing it was just like oh, yeah i, I it. found it here it just says oh, it only, only if you want a queer couple with five kids who've been married for 16 years who deconstructed their evangelical faith while being in leadership at a church leading to one partner coming out as transgender and the other partner being scapegoated for her preaching and the church ultimately closing wow yeah. That's amazing. I need to go find that and use that as like the the bio for when I when I release the podcast. Like that. There you go. Because it's better than Here's anything I will teaser. ever write. <laughs> Here's the teaser. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> are you guys good to just jump in, or are you happy? Because yeah. I'm very informal. Often, often I'm chatting with people, and I'm about twenty minutes in, and I'm like, gosh, we should just assume that 20 minutes ago we started because this has been so interesting yeah, so I, yeah. I like to just assume yeah. we're going and we'll, we'll see how we go but please tell me more you know I don't even know <laughs> where to start with that question so who are you both and and what flesh out that story a bit for me I'll probably interrupt yeah. and ask more questions as we go but like I want to know <laughs> sure yeah. sure where do you start where do you start uh. <laughs> 
Well, I think as far as church background and just our relationship, we've known each other since second grade. Second grade. Wow. Um, and we both kind of grew up in evangelical church background. Um, you can talk more about yours, but mine was a little more charismatic than hers was. Okay. Um, o- kind of open Bible-ish church background. So um, yeah, so had very evangelical and, uh, you know, we started dating sophomores in high school, mm-hmm. um, got married in college, and first job right out of the gate took Katie to a ministry position. So wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can talk more about that. Yeah, I think, you know, we grew up in this, we're, you know, from the Midwest, we're from Iowa, we, okay. um, and so the Midwest of the United States, and so it's already a very conservative place, and then when you consider you're in an evangelical church, as a kid, you don't even know what you're in, you know, you're just like, no, you don't, you have no context, right? You have nothing, you, you have nothing. And so we both went, we went to a small private Christian school where our parents were very involved. We knew, you just knew everyone, you know, so that was your community, even though we lived in a largest, largest city, like we had this very small community. Mm. So my first job out of college was interning for my childhood church, which had grown large enough to say like, well, we're not going to have women pastors, but somebody could go to bat to have like maybe a women, women's like associate for, so I was the associate for junior high ministry. That's how I jumped into my first ministry job. And then I off and on had ministry jobs that were paid and unpaid, mostly unpaid, because that's women's labor in the church is almost uh-huh. always unpaid. Oh, absolutely. Almost I, I, always. So were, were you married at this point? Like, how was yes. that? Right, okay, because I was going to say, even then, for most evangelical kind of positions, maybe if a, lead, a woman's in some sort of leadership role, very rarely are they single. Uh, oh. Right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And Phil, there are so many stories of, like, <laughs> Because Nia at the time was living, she wasn't out yet. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't come out until about three years ago to me, and then to our broader community about a year and a half to a year and a half to two two years ago. So at that time, you know, we're living in a very traditional marriage, but she was still very. I was very loud and leadership oriented, and she was like, you know, I'm chill. She's an Enneagram nine. I'm an Enneagram seven. (laughs) And so for those familiar with the Enneagram, I mean, that's an obvious, I exhibited traditionally more masculine traits for the church scenario. And Mm -hmm. she was much more feminine traits. So there were staff meetings I was in at that church where during full staff prayer, I was prayed over that I would be submissive to my husband in full staff in front of everyone. (laughs) And I'm, you know, 22 years old and don't have enough experience to stand up for myself and be like, Oh, and you're a woman. So good luck anyway, right? Oh, exactly. (laughs) Just wildly, wildly inappropriate. Wow. So, yeah. So Mia, what were you doing at this time? You, you were involved in ministry, not particularly interested. Like you kind of slot into that. I was trying to think about this for the last uh, few days and I think, my church experience has has not changed a whole lot from when I was a kid. So I grew up in that charismatic environment, 
so many things wrong with that. Um, and but there were some good parts where I I kind of found uh, my own faith in that. And I think the main thing for me was you know having this big thing that I'm hiding my entire life in the church was just not engaging too much. Uh, so I you know I, I went to small groups, men's groups, whatever, you know, that were there, but I didn't ever engage, open up. Um, I helped you with junior high ministry, you know, I was a volunteer in that ministry, but I mean, we didn't even go to church there when, when Katie was the associate there, because you just didn't have time. So, you know, we didn't even attend the service. So um, I'm always kind of like ancillarily on the side of uh, the church community, I think. Mm. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was involved, but I never really gave my full self, obviously, to that process. Sure. It wasn't what you wanted to do is your dream job, give right. 80 hours a week to this thing. Like, you know, that right. wasn't like what you got up in the morning going, yes, I want to go to a church and spend all day helping people do stuff. Like Exactly. Yeah, I did. That's exactly what I want to do. Some people yeah. do, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I get it. I, I've actually been both persons. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm I growing it. into the person that's like, ah, that's okay. No one should be giving 80 hours a week no. to church work. No. I mean, you just shouldn't. It's so See, Almost anything, really. I mean, no, it's just a lot of hours to put into any one thing. Absolutely. No, it's so unhealthy. But you're told that that's if you're going to be successful as any kind of spiritual leader, that you have mm. to work two, three, a hundred times harder than everyone else and constantly be available. I mean, that just speaks to the lack of boundaries in church leadership right. and in church period, really. Mm. Which I think in my experience now, obviously as a male, not having experienced the same as being a female in a leadership position, but having witnessed that and, and talked to hundreds of people at this point, probably in that position, um, all the more hard to establish boundaries and say no when you're not male, right? I mean, on some level, it feels like there's, well, there's this masculine superiority that you're submitting to on some level, as well as a hierarchy of, oh, the senior pastor says. Oh, Um, yeah. Like we just did a, I just did a podcast with my brother and sister-in-law and we were laughing because um, they had gone through like, I think it's like churchstaffing.com or something. And it's like, it's basically like resume, like they're, they're asking people for resumes and hiring out or whatever. And in it, it's stuff like, you know, there's this huge list of like 20 things that you must do. And at the bottom, it's like, and anything else the senior pastor asks you. And I'm like, oh, oh. that's an extra 20 hours at least. Like, you know, oh. I mean, it's just like, it's like, yeah. oh, well, I'm, I'm doomed if, if I'm also under that kind of component. But it feels like, um, in my experience, talking to leaders that are female, there's a whole nother component of not being able to sort of stand up for yourself. It, was that oh, something yeah. that you struggled with, wrestled with? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because the thing of it is, like, when we, so we left, we ended up leaving the church of our childhood my childhood and planting a new church with the youth pastor from that previous church. And so this is what is so crazy about it is, so there were two pastors who were planning that church and they brought me on as their administrative assistant. I'm saying in quotes, because I was in every planning meeting. I helped with teaching, you know, I helped plan out teaching schedules. The only meetings I weren't allowed in was the elder meeting. Right. And 
Yeah, and so, but I was effectively a pastor of this church. Nine bucks an hour. Nine bucks an hour, uh, you know, as this this, like young kid still. I mean, I was still 25 at the time. So, but the big thing was, is like, they allowed me to teach. We would never have Mm -hmm. called it preaching, but they allowed me, which already is problematic, right? They allowed me to um, teach, but the hierarchical structure was, the elder, you know, if you like had the umbrella structure, right? It's like God at the top and then the umbrella is the elders and then the little umbrella is the pastor. And then Nia, as my husband at the then time, had to sign off on anything that I was going to preach about. Wow. So it was, I mean, just even those that you have to jump through. And as like, I wanted so badly to be in a position where I was able to use what I felt was my giftedness, what I felt like just who I am, that I was like, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. I will jump through Mm -hmm. any hoop just to be able to stand in front of people and share my heart with people. And I'm over there going, this is not okay that they're coming to me for this, Mm -hmm. but also I don't want to crush like your passion for this thing either by saying we need to get out of here yeah yeah that that feels like it's a a rock and a hard place right because you're left with i become complicit to something that i'm observing that seems kind of like crazy right i'm like listening and i'm like i've heard some crazy stuff and i've i've also heard similar things in, in the past but i'm like that just it shocks me every time i'm like so they send you home with your little letter and they go, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. now go get your husband to sign this then, and then you can come back. And if it's got signs, then you can go on a school trip. You know, it's like, it's like, like a kid or something, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so, like, that leaves you, though, Nia, like, on this uh, kind of weird fence going, I have to become complicit to something that I think is kind of a bit fucked up. But if I don't, then you don't get to pursue your dreams. And, you know, uh-huh. you don't get to become all... You... How did you feel in that kind of... Were, were you being a little removed from being excited about being involved in the church in the same uh, to the same degree did you feel that gave you some insight into maybe some of the insanity that kind of Katie was kind of running around going nuts doing does that yeah absolutely you know I I think there were multiple moments in the last however many years even where being removed you can go like whoa this doesn't and, and I think being my personality too this just doesn't feel good um and you know, that put up against Katie's passion and, you know, the fact that, you know, there was one point at that same church where they decided to pay her $200 a month. So, so that from my perspective, as I'm watching it, so they can tell you what to do and give you that extra senior pastor says, you know, 20 hours a week, working 40 hours a week for 200 bucks a month. And from my perspective, sitting off kind of on the sidelines going, this is gross i mean it really is right fucked up is a great term yeah. it's, it's like control to the nth degree and even even as katie can could see that at the time it's like well i love doing this thing and yeah. i don't want to give it up you know so yeah it's a real take what you can get mentality mm. of like i mean and you almost feel at, at some point inside of the church i began to feel like okay i know i'm a subversive Like, I know that I am beginning to think a different way. I'm beginning to, like, my theology is very different. It's starting to change, which is so crazy, too, because sometimes your deconstruction is, like, um, kicked off by people saying things that 
I don't think they understand that they're even saying, you know, like giving, like even in the evangelical church, you would give, they'd give like little inches, you know, like you'd get an inch of like, oh yeah, that is freedom. But like, I, and then they, they want you to stop at the door, you know, like, oh yeah, you can come to the door of this kind of freedom. But I was always like, well, let's just open it. Don't you want to just open it and see what's behind there? You know? And so that's when it became difficult is when I'm saying, you are saying you want people to be free. You are saying you want women to be heard. You are saying that you want us to be able to be vulnerable with each other. I believe you. So I'm going to do that. And, and you just kind of accept whatever they're willing to give at the time. Because it's an abusive relationship. I mean, that's what it is. That's what mm. abusive, abusive romantic relationships are. Yeah. Are your partner gives you a little bit of what you need to make you feel really good about yourself, yeah. but the rest of the time they treat you like shit. But you're like, but I get to do this one thing that's basically like drugs to me, and so the rest of it is like. No big deal. I mean, it's fine. It's yeah. fine that you treat me like shit and I do everything for you and you do nothing for me. But three times in three years, I got to stand up and preach in front of people three times. And that like gave me the adrenaline rush I needed to keep going, you know? It's wild. I've used that analogy of like an abusive relationship a lot because it, yeah. it really is like you can see that. Um, but there's this, like, you don't understand, right? When you're outside of an abusive relationship, you're like, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't understand. Correct. You know, like, um, you're like looking on going, oh my God, this is horrific. And this person is trying to explain to me how great this person is. Um, and it is very similar, right? When you're in locked in that world and you're trapped in it, you are very, um, Oh, but you don't understand. Like they're letting me preach, you know, once a year, and that might change. It might get better, and even it's such a huge deal. I mean, how many churches do you know where a woman gets to preach, or you know, hey, and you oh, start right? like mm -hmm. giving yourself these kind of um, uh, rationalizations of of why it's a good thing, where really taking it to any other context, it's like crumbs. You know, <laughs> it's not even a meal. Oh, yeah. um, that's that's wild. That's really wild. So. Nia, where were you in this process of, of going through um, being involved in a church and then going out and being planted in a church? Um, how were you engaging with Christianity, church? Were, were you um, aware of um, identity crisis in yourself? You, uh, I think you said at the beginning it was only about three years ago you kind of came yeah. out um, to Katie as well, not even fully publicly. Yeah. Like, So I'm presuming in the midst of this you are not out you are figuring whatever that looks like for you can you talk a bit about that journey and how it kind of like came alongside things because i'm yeah. assuming that it didn't feel like i mean we're talking about an environment that's barely letting your you know your wife preach um i'm assuming it wasn't somewhere that you're like this will be a safe environment for me to figure this oh, out 100 <laughs> yeah, absolutely not you know it was a what happened was it ended up being a safe environment sort of to privately deconstruct my own <laughs> theology about some things. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of that. I think, you know, when we transferred from the church prior to that to that church, um, Katie miscarried our first child. Mm. And there were some horrific things that were said to us in that process about, you know, God's will, God did this, you know, some things like that. And 
that really led, I think, to, for both of us to some really looking at theologically, what do we actually believe here? And so I think as we moved to that second church, that's where I was at, just trying to look at these things and, and just seeing how they're treating Katie and how, what they're saying versus what they're doing. You know, I'm again, off to the side, I'm going to, you know, I was at the first, like, we're going to lottery to pick elders for the church you know it was like all the all the men in one room and we're gonna see based on your answers who's the best for this job so like I was at that but I you know I'm, I'm not speaking up I'm not saying much um and just all the while just listening and just thinking some of this feels really bad and mm. and the actions don't line up with what's being said and so you know by the time we left that church I think I was almost all the way ready to like dive into my own identity. I wasn't even there. And so that was 2015, we left that church. So five years ago now. So I was just right at the cusp of having deconstructed enough to be able to look inside. Um, Yeah. Was was that quite key for you then you would say is that you had to do the kind of deconstructing of faith, God, how it all kind of pieced together, church, before you could kind of start really kind of evaluating what's going on within internally. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, we were talking about this yesterday and I think the, the thing about looking, even deconstructing something small and and we see it in family and friends who have kind of cut off relationship with us is that if you pull the thread, you have to be ready to go all the way down to the bottom of that. And for me, that meant potentially losing my marriage And so, you know, you start to pull that thread and then eventually you go, okay, I I got to get to the bottom of this. And that means, you know, we have to talk about our marriage and um, do we get, do we just get married because we were teenagers and, you know, man and woman, and that's what, you know, was supposed to happen. And we were the church. And um, so you have to think about all of those things and Mm. you have to be ready to do that when you start to think about your faith. So it's yeah. it's really a, a deep well of identity once you get going in there. And uh, it definitely had to happen in order to, for me to get to the bottom. Yeah. I, I see this a lot when I talk with people that are deconstructing. Um, often their partners are either deconstructing at a different pace or in a different direction or not at all. Um, and that can that can end marriages. It, you know, that just, just that of, uh, hey, you believe in God this way. I kind of believe in God a different way or maybe don't believe in God at all. And that's enough to end the marriage, right? Um, and so I guess what we're talking here is like, I mean, it's a whole nother level, right? I mean, because it, it, that feels almost once you start looking at something like, um, you know, uh, your actual gender construct, right? You're, you, who you are, um, gendered at least, like that's a lot more personal and very uh, intimately involved with the marriage than maybe like, oh, what do you think God's like? You know, like, if that was a big enough question for some people, like no way would that marriage kind of... S- survive such a deep kind of um intimate crisis in a sense yeah Um, i think for us the faith piece was really nice because we you know in the church i'm just the follower for lack of a better term you know as katie's out in front and she's preaching and leading in different ways and i'm following so as she's growing she's still growing in her theological views and i guess deconstruction um i'm you know kind of 
latching onto that and feeling that and, and going with her. And then at points I would say, whoa, this doesn't feel good, you know? And so we start, I start to push on her a little bit to deconstruct something else. So we always had that real nice, same level of seem like deconstruction yeah. through the process mm-hmm. until I got to the gender identity piece. And then, you know, we're in something very personal versus uh, a theological piece, yeah. but. Yeah, and just scary. I yeah. mean, that's just the scary thing no matter who you are, you know, no matter who you are, especially if you're in your thirties and you're married. I mean, I don't care if you're in a faith or not in a faith coming out, you're saying that I'm, I feel this way inside, which to you is going to feel like a totally different person, Mm. which I know is not a totally different person, but to you is going to feel that way. And I'm going to give you this information. I mean, I don't care if you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, I don't, I do not care. That is a huge step for anyone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's astonishing, like, um, the bravery and courage and, um, the love and connection in a relationship to, to navigate that is is astonishing. Honestly, I'm like hats off, you know, I'm scared to tell my wife sometimes if I forgot to, you know, I don't know whatever, do something I was supposed to do. And like, I'm like, Oh God, will she ever forgive me? You know, not quite, but you know, like, um, but like, these are huge things and and absolutely. Right. Because this isn't just uh Oh, this might not work. It's a, well, this might have real issues and and complications. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, I'm interested. Um, So I, I, I obviously, I, I mean, I'm a straight, cis, white, I mean, I'm like at the top of the pecking chart on privilege, maybe aside from being, you know, a billionaire or something like that. Um, I'm doing pretty well. Um, so I, I'm very far removed from this world in itself. Um, uh, but I'm really intrigued because a lot of times um, as people deconstruct and they do have, um, they find freedom to go, hey, maybe I'm able to explore my identity in, in some new ways, in some fresh ways. A lot of people um, explore that in a very new way, a very undiscovered or, or um, uh, I guess, a, um, yeah, new would be, be a fair way to say it. But a lot of people, it's been a very repressed thing that they were very aware of for a long time. Um, for you, was this something that kind of came out of the blue that you kind of felt permission to kind of just um, kind of allow to flourish? Or was it something that you had felt and you, you kind of had that niggle or you, you were aware of, but you didn't have the permission? Like, and, and, and we can, if this is too personal as well, it's no, fine as well. But I'm just really intrigued how, how that dynamic played in as well with growing up in church and charismatic. I'm a, I'm a charismatic boy as well. I've, I've been a part of charismatic movement for a while. Yeah. Uh, like that. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, and I, mean, I love it. But yeah, like, how, how was that for you? What was that experience like for you? Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is looking back on it, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020 and you can talk about, you know, I came out to uh, a, a lot of people that I've come out to have been like, oh yeah, we, you know, we can see the signs and I'm over there going, what signs are, where are you seeing? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> But, you know, looking back, it definitely, I, I knew about this from a, a younger age. And I just actually wrote a short story that we're kicking a Kickstarter off today um, to try to get published because it, it, through that processing, it was basically therapeutic processing. Um, I essentially, as a teenager, 12, 13, just locked this part of me away, just straight away locked it away. And so I, you know, I remember things before that and, and then even, you know, after that, a few things, but um, hid this part of me away 
And it's been therapy, deconstruction, um, to just pull off layer after layer after layer to get to the core of who I am. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's really it. Well, and I think to be fair, the church, after the church that we planted, we went into another church to heal. And we, we really did find a lot of freedom there. You know, there's like mm. these incremental steps that you take to kind of get to true freedom. <laughs> but like in that church, there was a lot more space. I was preaching on a regular basis. I think, Mia, you felt a little bit more space to feel freer in the way that you thought about yourself because the message, it was the first time ever we had heard the message, people are good. Like, mm, wow. period. Like, it was the very first time in our entire lives that we had heard God created people good. That was said from the front, but then, you know, ultimately, maybe not exactly what people feel. I, like that. I think people wanted to believe that, yeah. but couldn't follow yeah. through within the system. Yeah. And I think that's also what's important to understand is like the system is the abusive yeah. constriction. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone inside the system, I mean, unless you have a mental problem, really wants to hurt someone else. They want sure. to do this yeah. the best way possible, but it's systematic. And, they have their also, hands tied. You hear that all the time, don't you? Uh, exactly. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't see yeah, that. No, I was just yeah. say, ultimately, my freedom came because um, Katie was given, asked the opportunity to be a, a preacher at our, our last church. And she ended up, through a series of events, which she can talk more about, ended up doing it almost every other week. And her messages in particular, you know, I, we're feeding into one another at home and, and then I'm listening to her on Sunday going, oh my gosh, this is, I need this freedom. And mm. so mostly through listening to her and being around a lot of other people who felt similarly, I feel, um, allowed me to, that space that I needed to just go, okay, this is, this is what's happening. Mm. That's so good. That's amazing. So what, what kind of um, church, I mean, you don't have to get specific. I don't want people like Googling and finding out what churches you're a part of and okay. sending them hate mail or anything. But, but this, this last kind of church that you were in, this gave you a bit more freedom. Um, I mean, you can leak it if you want them to get the hate mail. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think anyone me. listening to this sends hate mail. So don't worry. Um, you, uh, but, uh, Phil, you can send them hate mail. They don't exist anymore. They close. They're the ones that <laughs> oh, there you go. Prop themselves. Um, so this, this final church though, that you were part of, was it kind of a more kind of progressive liberal was it mainline like what what about it made it a bit more free for you to be able to preach katie and and for you to kind of feel you had a bit of room to grow there was no denominational affiliation okay technically so i think that was a big piece of just kind of the ability to do whatever yeah yeah and we came Oof. I mean, this is a very loaded question because it's a very, it's very difficult because um, I always said towards the end of us being there before Nia came out that we were a progressing church. If I would, were, were to describe it, nobody else in leadership would have described it that way. They would have been like, Shh, stop saying the P word. We don't want to say the P word, but they really were. I mean, secretly lots of people, and I don't even know secretly, we're listening to things like, you know, we were listening to um, Bible for Normal People podcast. People were reading Richard Rohr. There was lots of progressive, I mean, contemplative prayer. We were working into things. I don't think people realized we were progressing mm. until we were presented with this opportunity to really live a progressive Christianity, which was to fully accept 
someone who is trans and who's out and who's in leadership. And then it was like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. But there was so much, it felt like so much freedom because there was very little oversight saying you can and can't do this. So I got in a lot of trouble for preaching Richard Rohr. Like, but the, then the, the message to me was just stop, just say, do quote Richard Rohr. Just but stop citing him. Yeah, yeah. stop citing him. Yeah. And I said, absolutely hell no. Like, that's <laughs> someone's work. You don't do that. And I think I felt that way because I'm like, if someone quoted my work, like, I work like fucking hell to put out what I'm putting out. If someone quoted me and didn't cite me, that would that's be a funny. huge disrespect. Not like I should just be mad about it, but that's disrespectful to me. And especially because I've now become a follower of this person. And I think I want you to know if I preach something, you should be able to go find it. And so, but, and there was that push and pull of like, we want to do this, but then there's this whole segment of our church that have been here from the very beginning. And we came late, you know, we, it was only the last three years of the church that we were there. And that church had been around for 20 years in various wow. forms. But we came in when the church was at a point of crisis and I had the tools to help that church move through a point of crisis. And I didn't realize that what I was doing was actually responding in my own trauma response from previous church experience, because my trauma response is the tendon befriend, which is now like, uh, if you read anything like uh, Therese Pasquale has a spiritual trauma book and she talks a lot about tend and befriend, befriend, and that's what mine is, is I'm going to do tend and befriend. I feel triggered, but I don't feel it as a trigger. I feel it as compassion. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to help take care of you. And I think that because the church was in such a crisis moment when we kind of came into it and we had the tools to give them that they were just like, okay, we'll do what you say up to a certain point. And then it was like when Nia came out, everybody was like, oh, uh oh, we've been asleep at the wheel. What happened? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what it felt like to us. Yeah. And that should be a huge disclaimer yeah. is like, uh, we understand our perspective is very much our own. And we love, love, love these people that were part of this church because they did give us so much of ourselves back, which mm -hmm. is so great. <laughs> I mean, it's so wild because they gave us enough of ourselves to know that what was happening was wrong. Mm. which is wild you yeah. know yeah wow that's yeah i mean it's unfortunately it's not a uh as unique as the nuances will be it's far from a unique story is it uh, you know it's it's very very common i think for people to go through these kind of um, stages and especially leaders i think there's this like we can kind of almost sweep under the rug a lot of things, but as soon as someone's in leadership, it's like, oh God, everyone's looking like we need to deal with this on some level. And um, to me, that's so, yeah. so crazy that that is the, one of the most difficult parts of being in church leadership. Because for me, if you're going to be in leadership as a church, you should, as a church person, you should be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You should be able to say what your struggles are. That's spirituality to me. Yeah. It's this progression of, I don't really know. I also need help because unless you're vulnerable as a leader, those who are looking to you for help are always going to think that they can't do it themselves. Yeah, I think I think we learned that really early too. Not really early, but earlier in our church experience, because we had a pastor who died by suicide, 
And wow. during that whole process, it was very clear that vulnerability was what we wanted in the church, yeah. but it was not allowed. Right. And so we learned that in that situation, like we're not going to go into another church situation where we're talking about vulnerability, but we're not actually allowing people yeah. to do that. So mm -hmm. I think that was a, a powerful piece of our past that informed that going forward. Mm -hmm. mm. That makes sense a lot, though. I, I think there's a component within probably even more so Protestant Christianity than most faiths where um, we place a requirement on leaders to have the answer not a answer even but the answer and you know what's right you know what's wrong you know what i should do you know what god said you know how to read the bible and interpret it just the right way because there's only one right way or you know like we've got that requirement pastors it's not surprising that the pastors then have breakdowns burnouts suicide you know mental health problems um but it's also not surprising that they can't ever talk about any of this because they're the person with the answer you know no one nobody right wants to spend um, six months climbing a mountain to get to the guru to find out the guru's having a bit of a depressed day and you know can't read you know i'm like no no i climbed this mountain to get the guru who's got his shit together and knows everything right and has got his life perfect and he's going to give me the answer right um and that's who we've made our pastors to be right this person that's always on always great um and it does feel like it's and it's we're talking about systemic problems right where a lot of the times we can point the finger at the pastor and go, God, this person's a terrible person. Look how they treated that person. Look how they did this. Look how they did that or whatever. Or look what they teach. Um, but when you look at them in the context of the system they're in, they don't have an option. They can't teach a different way. They can't love a different way. They can't respond to people differently. Um, I think, so it's a really weird dynamic there. Sorry. Honestly, I think that is why the last church we were in was the way that it was, is because um, Katie was able to say, she was not a paid pastor mm. and was able to say as your leader from the front on a Sunday morning, I'm, I should be your guide, not your, I should be coming from behind and supporting you. And, you know, not the person that authoritarily tells you the answer to your question and mm. gives you what you want to hear because that's, we, we've seen that not working. And so because you weren't paid. And I mean, this is my feeling looking at it. You can say how you feel. <laughs> yeah. uh, it felt like you had more freedom to say that and say, I am not the person to give you answers. Yeah. I think this is, this is where hmm, I want to be careful how I say this because I never want to um, lessen another woman's experience. So for me, this is where for me, I, it was helpful for me that my livelihood did not depend on me being a pastor. Mm. You know, I had a spouse who was working a full-time job. I stayed home with our children full-time. I had the time and attention to give to it without the pressure of making my entire livelihood be the church, which I will forever. I'm going to go to my grave saying no one should ever make their sole livelihood the church mm. because you end up compromising so many things because this big donor doesn't like it or because if you say things just this other little way then somebody might give you more money you know it's a very tricky situation and you know i still have a lot of compassion for especially in our area young white males that are brought into leadership positions when they're 20 22 25 years old and groomed to be they're groomed
It's a grooming process. And they even said that to Nia when she came in to say, I'm going to be a leader. They said, we're going to groom people to be an elder. And then when you're groomed sufficiently, (laughs) you can be in this position. And so looking from this side into it, I, no one ever cared enough to groom me because they're like, well, let's just get rid of her. Like, oh yeah, if she doesn't work out, just boot her out. You know, there's no grooming that goes into women in the church the same way that there is for young men that, that sure. have passion and then they are groomed to be a specific way. And I think I just got to say like, mm, no, I'm not going to do that because I could like walk away at any second. None of the, like, it matters yeah. my identity, but it doesn't matter for my livelihood. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that is, I mean, identity is gigantic, obviously, and it's very hard, but that gave me just that tiniest bit of agency yeah. to say, I don't have to worry if I'm going to feed my kids or if one of our children is going to get their medication. I don't have to worry about that piece. Yeah. I just have to worry about if I'm going to spiral into a gigantic melodramatic, very deep depression, because, you know, I just had to worry about that, about me, Mm. which is a whole nother difficult, tangled web. But I think that that's what is difficult about the church system, that you can't, I mean, and there are points where, don't get me wrong, men have choices that they get to make, but the grooming that goes into getting them to a point where they would even have the agency to make that choice makes it very difficult for them to see beyond to the next, like what would they even look like to open another door here? Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does. And and I think, you know, I talk to a lot of pastors that are deconstructing their faith um, and and pastors in other contexts as well, but the ones that are deconstructing, you you look at where they're at and man, my heart breaks, honestly, because, because you look at generally speaking nine times out of 10, we're talking about, um, a, a man usually, um, although I talk to many women pastors that are also deconstructed, but um, a man who's grown up in church from the youth was like highlighted as being like, oh, we'll pull him under our wing and we'll give him like the training to become a youth leader. And usually even before he's left the youth, he's involved in the leadership a little bit, like kind of like almost like the under the the, the youth elders wing. So, you know, like, <laughs> the youth, and, then grad, and then like, and then pushed off into like seminary, Christian college to do some sort of theological divinity, you know, whatever it is, pastoring course. And literally from there goes straight into a church as a youth pastor, associate pastor, maybe even a senior pastor someplace, you know, if you're in um, somewhere backwater enough. Um, and, and from there, you work your way up. And before you know it, you're 25 years in, you've got no qualifications in anything. You've got no concept of how to do anything other than pastor. And you've got a huge mortgage, you've got three kids, you've got bills, medical bills, you know, I mean, you've got everything and you're going, oh crap, I'm not sure I believe a lot of this. Right. And what the hell are you supposed to do, right? I mean, that's a terrifying prospect. Um, the sideways shift from that place is a very scary place um, to be. And, and it does leave you with a question where you literally have integrity on one side and paying the bills, the livelihood of your children and your partner and whatever, your dog. Um, you know, like that's literally the choice you're making. And and. And I can't say that making the choice of getting your bills paid and looking after your kids is not an integrity-based choice, right? On some level, it still is. You're just having to choose to elevate one over the other. Um, But there is a beauty of seeing people that are in the position that you were in, Katie, where you're like, 
eh, I took my $200 a month pay cut, actually. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's right. the best thing I've ever done. I don't have to do anything now. I could do whatever the hell I want. You know, it's right. like, you need to do this. No, I don't. I'm here on my own volition. I do what I want when I want. And you need me much more than I need you because I don't need anything out of this equation. I, right. I'm not getting, you know, paid. I'm not whatever. Um, I'm sure you got lots out of the dynamic of being there and, and you know, loving people the way you were doing. But um, it, it certainly looks like a more healthy model if there, if there are different models that are maybe more healthy than others. Um, it gives people a lot more freedom. Of course, some people have to work. You know, if, if you're going to be involved in church that much and do that many hours, you, you need to pay the bills. You know, like there has to be some level of like tying finances into that on, on some level, unless they're lucky yeah. enough to be married to someone that pays the bills. Or, right. Yeah. One of the crazy things is even that $200 a month at, at our previous church, like she finally had to say, you can't give this to me anymore. I'm still going to do what you're, you know, I'm doing, but you can't give it because even that amount was enough to control, mm. you know, things. And it's just, it was crazy to watch that, you know, unfold when, when she said, no, I'm not going to take this anymore. And the pastor literally said, yeah, he her. said, well, then I can't tell you what to do anymore. And I said, wow. Yeah, I know. I know what I'm going for here. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like you Yes, I know. I don't want you to tell me what to do anymore because yeah. this is getting icky. Like it's starting to feel gross and I'm not sure. And I got a lot of pushback from that. Lots of calls, lots of meetings, you know, right. saying, are you leaving? What's happening? And it was like, no, just, I just want to do what I'm doing without threat of this being pulled away from me yeah. at any time. Yeah, it's just, and I think that is what is so difficult is the dynamic that we have set up that if you are in church leadership, you do work an insane amount of time. And to me, that that is part of the problem is we just, we don't share enough of our work. We don't give enough of our work away. We don't tell people enough, like you are capable of this. And part of your spiritual development is you handling it and not me handling it, you know? And I think that that's what's difficult. We want to use our gifts so much that sometimes we hoard those positions to ourselves. But there's like, in a, I would think in a mega church of like, I'm, I'm going to say a mega church in my mind is like 2000 people because anything upwards of that to me is like so huge. But in a group of 2000 people, how many people can play a guitar? Like it might not be great, but they can do it. How many people yep. can sing? Dozens of people can sing. It might not be great, but they can do it. I mean, it's because we've said the production quality of this has to be like a fucking Broadway show instead of we understand what we're here and what we're doing here this is this is not just christianity this is about spirituality but you want a religious experience that you can then feed off of the high of this emotional experience instead of going to a deep spiritual level as a community mm. which takes a lot less oversight from leadership but that's also terrifying to anyone who isn't pastoral leadership yeah. because you are all of a sudden going like people don't need you as much as you think that they do yeah you know? yeah that's our whole point of who we are as spiritual leaders is to give this away to people so that we don't do it for them anymore right. it's doing yourself out of a job really right i mean it, it is yeah. and that's <laughs> that there won't always be more people that need that but if you do your job right then other people can fill in those gaps as more people come. You are not always the one doing it. 
And I think that that is a terrifying prospect for people who get paid to do this as a job, you know? Well, I think as well, a certain type of person, um, certain types of people love that attention. They love being the person with the answers. They love being the go-to person, the whatever, the person with the mic, whatever characteristics those are. Um, there's been studies done on on um, narcissism within pastors and how there's much more narcissistic people in pastoring roles than there is in general populace. Um, which again, you think about it, you know, well, of course there is. Yeah. And actually some of that might be positive like if 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 we look at that role as as having to be the way it is i'm like well of course i would put a narcissistic person in that role that's who's going to thrive more you know it's the same with like you could say more narcissists or ceos yeah duh like of course they are um because you generally don't get to be a ceo without kind of not caring about your family a little bit and being driven and and whatever and staying till like 10 in the evening at work or like so i'm like of course that kind of happens um but there is an element of um if when we take that off the table, other people could fill these roles pretty beautifully. Um, mm-hmm. But the same person might not fill this kind of new kind of concept of what it looks like to pastor, to lead, to, to um, guide. Um, they're, they're really going to struggle, right? If you are the person that always wants your all eyes on me and the role is no longer look at me, I've got answers. It's uh, Hey, let me sit with you and cry while you cry and go, I don't know why your kid died, but. I'm here and I'll just sit with you. The narcissist doesn't want to sit with someone for six hours right. crying, right? That's, yeah. a, that's not, that doesn't tick the box, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and different people have different skills, personalities, whatever. Again, I'm not trying to actively attack any personality or anything. Right. Um, but I don't think pastors are going to operate in that kind of role a lot of the time because it's just not their personality, right? They want, they want a smoke machine and, you know, like to come in on a like zip wire, like, you know, with like, angels either side of the doesn't want to come in on a zip wire though phil like <laughs> it does, it does look pretty good. god yeah. give me one zip line in my life come on yeah. i have the tiger <laughs> like dance 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 you know yeah, yeah. what one i want one glitter uh, bomb zip line but I, <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, I was in the America at the beginning of this year um, before everything kind of kicked off and I was in the South and I was staying with a friend of mine um, and uh, he was telling me that um, they're part of a local church there that's a big church and he was telling me that they have um, a set design budget. Yeah. And it's six figures. Yeah. Yeah. That is and, not and so that to me, suddenly I'm like, oh yeah, the, the pastor over this organization whatever that is i'm gonna i'm gonna lean towards saying that he probably doesn't have the personality that is i'm gonna go sit with the person and cry for five hours right i mean so that kind of model of what it is to lead to to guide people to nurture whatever it is um those types of people are gonna have to find somewhere else to go maybe a ceo you know i don't know Basically, I, are a CEO. I do want to say something about that six figure dollar set budget because that's not uncommon. I mean, six mm-hmm. figures is probably uncommon. It's huge, but yeah. But this is what I want to say about that. How much money are they paying their nursery coordinator? Guaranteed that is a woman who is unpaid. $200 a month. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. And that's just and enough for control. Yeah. Yes, and it is the biggest job in, in a large church. If you get over 50 people in a church, the biggest job that's happening in that church is nursery coordinator. I guarantee yeah. you. Oh, you're and, running a small most school. Are unpaid. Yeah, most are unpaid. Yeah. We did a we did a women's uh, 
Sunday one time where the women in our church, we had 19 women that came up and they spoke during the um, service. It was a beautiful service. It was really great because we talked about the femininity of God. One of the women who spoke in the service had to come from nursery. She had to have her husband call her, get her out of the nursery, come and speak, and then go back to the nursery. That's what she had to do because not one single man would go back and be in the nursery. Just say, like, I got this for you. That, like, you know, just for this one hour of the year. Yes, I got got it. I'll take care of it. I will do it for you. I mean, that's the kind of disconnect that we're having where we're celebrating women and we can't even fill our nursery. And we only needed one volunteer and we couldn't have one man back there. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think our church pattern has fit that narcissistic kind of leadership roles throughout and um, I, I think as a person who was closeted trans, the freedom that I needed really came, like I said before, because of Katie and that you have a different type of leader who's not mm. really that presenting that same way and presenting a different space for you to figure out some of your own stuff. Because I think in, in those other churches, as much as I was deconstructing and even in our last church with, uh, before Katie, started preaching in a different way, I I don't know that I would have gotten there, you know, because the space itself that I was in was constrictive. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was, it was a certain way. We do it a certain way, you know, as much as we say it doesn't look a certain way or, you know, whatever it it was. And um, yeah, so I don't know. It's hard for me to say if I would have gotten there without a leader like that. Well, and the rewards for you to be male were so high. The rewards of being yeah. male, God mm. is male, Jesus is male, the Holy Spirit we might give you is sometimes feminine, you know, but then every other construct that we are presenting to people is very male. Mm. So when uh, when women finally wake up and go like, wait, wait just a goddamn second, this says that God is like a breastfeeding mother. And I'm going, I'm a breastfeeding mother, and I've never felt closer to God than mm. when I am breastfeeding my children. Why is that? Oh, it's because that is who God is. God is a breastfeeding mother. Uh, oh, wait, so that means God has feminine characteristics. So all of a sudden, your brain starts to shift in these directions where you go, oh, yeah, God does have masculine qualities, but God also has feminine qualities, and God has both, and God has neither. And you start to like open the door up that femininity in and of itself isn't a sin because I don't care how much you say that, that, Oh no, we love women. They're equal. We're complementarian. We know. I don't give a shit how much you say that when you exclusively call God male and you only talk about masculine structures of religion, you Mm -hmm. have, and the only story you ever hear about females is, uh, Deborah because nobody else was available, which that's a shit story, by the way. And Eve, which you are the root of all evil. Oh, okay, that's great. I can either be the last resort or the root of all evil, which by the way, I've been both. I've been called both, both the last resort and the devil. So the, the, the analogies play out. People have said those things about me because the, that's how the feminine narrative plays out. Yeah. And until you have 
both sides of God or all sides of God, not just feminine and masculine, not just um, able-bodied and not able-bodied, not just white and black. You know, I mean, there are so many different aspects of God and we push all of these other communities to the side and say, oh, uh-uh, no, no, white heteronormative God is the God that we want. And then other communities are going like, Jesus was brown. And we're going, shut up. We don't want to hear about brown Jesus. <laughs> you know, and like, and like, Jesus wrote to a marginalized community and we're like, no, he didn't. Jesus wanted us all to be rich. You know, like it's, it's crazy how we change the narrative. And when you start to actually listen to other communities and people who are listening to other communities and you actually hear those voices and you start to go, Oh, wait a second. God does not look as much like I thought he, he did, you know? Yeah. And that starts to open up your mind to different possibilities. Yeah. I, I'd be interested to understand or, or, or see how you perceive this, this um, dynamic in the church. But in the church, uh, I think you, you struck on something really interesting of this, like, this divination of masculinity, right? So masculinity is God, right? And, and we, we kind of like push any feminine qualities of gods to the side and maybe don't like them as much. Um, or we just kind of don't highlight that they're quite what we would traditionally call feminine qualities. But what's interesting to me is um, studies done on Christians, uh, male Christians specifically, show that they skew much more feminine than uh, than non-Christian males. So if you go out in the world and you grab 10,000 males and go, all right, let's have a look where they are on that kind of spectrum of f- very feminine to very masculine, they generally are somewhere X. And then you go and grab... 10,000 Christians and they are way closer to femininity than the the average population. That fascinates me because it does seem to be this kind of like obsession with like men being real men and all all that kind of component. Um, And I'm especially, I guess, interested um, Nia, in how you as uh, um, growing up in the church, um, you know, you're, perceived to be oh here's a here's a man he's married but he's maybe a little bit more feminine you kind of alluded to maybe having more feminine traits and things like that like did you how did you perceive that whole dynamic because it's quite common for a lot of christians to skew more feminine uh, as men but there is this kind of demonization of it at the same time which is kind of funny right we're kind of beating ourselves up because we're obviously doing something that makes us more feminine which i think is quite natural we're, we're doing a lot of things you know focusing on love and nurture and talking to this loving daddy and you know all that kind of stuff like that probably does help you know nurture some femininity in people but at the same time we're kind of demonizing ourselves for it and <laughs> um, because we want to be more manly men men uh, because that's who god is somewhere up in the sky with like you know just testosterone like coursing through him 24 <laughs> 7 um it, ha, what was that like for you um specifically because I, I think that you have a very unique kind of um uh, lens through which you must have been seeing that component yeah first of all I would say nobody thought I was feminine I mean I have I feel like I have these feminine you know some feminine qualities mm. okay but sorry like, when I, I came out no no that's okay when I came out everybody around me was kind of like what <laughs> you know it wasn't it there were people that said oh yeah I, I knew but like most people were like what what I, we don't understand oh, wow. so it wasn't like I was you know presenting something overtly feminine mm. um and I think for me, what what I latched onto in faith and really kind of that through line 
um, was Jesus and Jesus's compassion and Jesus's love, kind of like you just said. And I, it seems to me in those groups, the folks who kind of, you know, idolize uh, masculinity, but then still have these feminine qualities are pulled from, you know, somewhere in Jesus's story, <laughs> because otherwise, um, you know, I, I think you just have this such a dichotomy, like you said, otherwise you're fighting, we have to uphold the system with this toxic masculinity. Um, and, and maybe my personality even lends to it or somebody else's personality even lends to being more compassionate, nurturing. Um, and so we just say, well, Jesus did that. So I can do that piece of, you know, who I am and I have to uphold the rest of this toxic system. Um, I just remember we went, we had so many five o'clock AM men's groups that I, I hated going to. And, you know, at one point there was a, like an axe throwing kind of demonstration. And I just was like, what is happening here? That seems like a, a tremendous idea at 5 a.m. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know you're all just waking up, but here, curl this axe at a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just like, I don't understand, like the, the idolization of this is kind of confusing in light of what we're also grabbing onto and, you know, presenting as more compassionate, more empathetic through the lens of Jesus. So, yeah. I, for me, like I said, I just never really, I always just was rubbed the wrong way and, and didn't feel right um, in those environments because it, 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 number one, me being who I am, obviously somewhere inside of me knew that and it didn't feel comfortable, but then it just really was this juxtaposition of these two things that just felt so wrong together um, because it, they weren't authentic, you know, one or the other based in that environment, something was off. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I remember going to those men's meetings many a time and then very quickly, I, at very early age, I was like, you know what? It's not worth getting up at 6 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever really it was. Like, it's just no. not. Yeah, and I was always, I'd, I had no language or kind of worldview to kind of understand it this way, but I've always um, been very feminine in a lot of my traits and I've always preferred having female friends and guy friends. I mean, I've got a good mix of both, of course. Um, or I shouldn't say of course, because who knows, but like, I, I do. Um, but I've always felt more comfortable with my girlfriends. My closest friends are female. Um, and, and that was definitely like just demonized. I remember when I first moved to America, I lived in America for about four years. Um, and literally like my closest friends straight away that I made friends with were, were female. And people were like, oh my God, like, you kind of like are, are you guys dating or like and i'm like i don't know like just yeah, friends out, like sure. are, i've got like five friends you think i'm dating them all yeah. like it's like what like what do you hang out on your own sometimes i'm like yeah and like, oh my god like how are they not pregnant and it's like dude <laughs> I, I i'm like i couldn't convince these girls to sleep with me if i was trying and believe me i'm kind of trying through like multiple layers of dating and then ultimately marriage and then you know whatever but i am trying and it's not happening so like i don't think anyone's getting accidentally impregnated here you know like um but like it's that intensity where we're just we just don't know how to do those things and i think the american church is a whole nother yeah. level on that uh, being from europe i guess we have um I, i'm in the uk so it's still more puritanical than a lot of europe but i think we've grown a little bit um you know I, I like had a roommate that was female before i went to america and then like when i got to america like i threw out the idea for like i was like oh the second year is there well why? we could live like together and like people were like you cannot do that here 
yeah. cannot do yeah. that. Like, that's yeah. a bad you know, idea. What's super funny about that is the, the first kind of story I have around coming out, and I just wrote an article for Medium on, like, the privilege that I guess I hadn't really examined until recently um, of losing, because I, I'm very privileged. I'm white, you know, we, we have jobs, you know, a, a lot of things about uh, our lives are privileged. Uh, but we were doing a, a activity at work where you kind of went through and you had to put yourself in someone else's shoes and buy back some privileges with money that you were, fictional money you were given. And I spent the whole exercise just buying back things that I had lost in the last year, which was kind of insane to me because, you know, I don't really think, yeah, now I have to think about holding hands with my spouse in public. Now I have to think about where we're going to stop on a road trip for the restroom. You know, now I have to mm. think about all of these different things. And one of the first kind of hit me in the face with that was right after I came out at church, one of my friends who I, you know, was um, pretty good friends with building a relationship just kind of stopped hanging out with me. And I, I kept pestering him and, um, you know, we had kind of regularly been meeting every week and he finally said, you know, look, I uh, am not sure what to do because I have this ethos where I don't hang out with women alone. And I was like, this is, this is the birth to me of what I now call rude, but affirming, because it's like, this is the most misogynistic thing, but it's like completely affirming yeah. who I am. <laughs> You're like, thank you, but also, ouch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it just wow. it is fascinating. Mm, that is really, really fascinating. So, I mean, let, let's go into that, because I'd really love to know more about this journey in, I mean, it, it sounds like this didn't go well, this, this kind of transition period, at least from a community church dynamic, that might be the yeah. case. It's, it's, it also sounds like it's gone fantastically well for you both and, you know, whatever. Um, but was that something that you kind of like saw writing on the wall as you were kind of like in the process? Was that, there's a time between you kind of coming out to Katie and coming out to the, the you know, broader public, which I think is a fairly normal kind of like component of people like kind of staggering who they share their intimate world with. Um, but was that something that you kind of saw writing on the wall of going, this community isn't ready for this. It's not going to work. Can it even work? You know, like that kind of um, dynamic or, or were you quite hopeful that like, you know, that people would kind of walk along with you and go, yeah, no, this is great. Or uh, yeah, what was, I, what was that like? I, you know, I think that, that is a good question. And I think the hopefulness um, is something that is always there because, you know, even with family that's estranged, there's like this little, this little glimmer of hope that you hope that they come around. You have to kind of cut, you, you know, build that wall enough where it's not so painful when they don't. Um, mm. But that is always kind of just there enough to keep you going and, and keep you loving, ultimately, from my perspective, to keep myself to be loving in that relationship when necessary and, and all of that. So looking back on the church piece, I think I would say hindsight again, big time, big time red flags. Mm -hmm. But when we're in it, there's this hope. And um, <laughs> I, so I came out to Katie in like July of 18, 17, maybe it was 17. Um, I ended up coming out to my family in October of 18, just on a whim. I was kind of ticked at our president and the way he was handling some things. And I thought in my mind, if my family knows that I'm trans, surely they would not, you know, support 
something like this, which obviously is a delusion on my part, but uh, I, I just, you just want to hope and think that. And so I came out to them um, via email and I ended up coming out to our pastor probably a week or two after that, because I just knew I have a family member. I knew it was going to get out of control. Um, so I came out to the pastor and he kind of said, all right, let's hold this under wraps until we can figure out how to communicate it to the rest of the leadership team. There was 10 leaders at the church in, in leadership. Um, so we, we ended up meeting with them. I came out and it was a, a moment of just allowing everybody to share their feelings and how they felt about the situation. And it, in that moment, there were some things that even in that moment felt off and looking back felt, re felt really off. Um, you know, people saying things like, you know, I support you, but like God, like you, like gay people don't have the ability to procreate. So something is broken here. And, but I support you. Like, I don't understand that. And so we, you know, go around the circle and have that. And some people are like, yes, this is, we're going to affirm you. And some are like, I don't know. And some are like, yeah, I don't really affirm this. And so ultimately, you know, I don't even know how to tell this story in six seconds because this is... We've got all the time in the world, so... Oh, my goodness. As much time like, as you need, so... Because ultimately what happened was, and we can get into this more, um, I, Katie and I went to a Richard Rohr conference in New Mexico in April of 19, and that was the most safe loving space that I've ever been in. Just the way they curate that that space was just so beautiful. And so I went fully out and fully, you know, myself. And I was just like, this is this is lovely and this is definitely, you know, who I am and, and what I need to do. And uh I had been waiting, you know, six months for um the, the pastor at our church was kind of like, you know, let me figure out how to like get our community on board with, you know, having a translator and, and we'll figure out how to talk to people who disagree and, you know, all of this other stuff. And so part of it was, in, in my opinion, looking back, that he was trying to do that to himself as well. And so it was a little bit of a struggle to, um, to move that conversation forward because he didn't know how. And so I kind of got to a point where I'm like, I'm waiting to come out on your timetable and I can't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> And so I came out on social media and I tried to be very um, careful about that, about who saw that. And, and a couple of people saw that who maybe uh, he didn't want to see that because he hadn't had those conversations yet. Um, and, and so long story short, uh, I came out, ended up saying, you know, I need to come out to the full community. I would love to like stand up there and just tell my story. And, and it was like, okay, why don't you do that? And, and it ended up being more of a, of an interview style and very much not, didn't feel affirming from my mm. perspective. And I'm sure maybe it was from um, other perspectives, but just didn't feel that way. Um, and, and, and through the whole process then, as we kept moving along, nobody wanted to say, we just don't think, uh, there were a few that said, we just don't think a trans leader should be in a church. You know, we don't agree with this. And those people left. And nobody from the leadership team wanted to say we don't think a trans leader should be in leadership because that sounds transphobic and it kind of is. It is transphobic. 
And so what happened was all of the steam into we don't think a trans person should be in here was we think Katie has duped us with all of her teachings for the last mm. two years. And we think that this liberal theology has led us to this place where nobody can get a handle around what's happening. And, you know, essentially Katie broke the wall down and I walked through it is what happened. And when I showed up on the other side, it was just like, oh, like Katie said earlier, oh shit, like what, where have we been going? What have we been doing? Mm. But nobody in the process, I mean, we said at the very beginning when we sat down and met with that leadership team, if you want us to leave, we will leave. Like we do not want to cause problems. We do not want to destroy this church. We just, we want to be who we are and be affirmed in that. And if you can't do that here, totally fine. No shade. Like we'll get out of there and you know, won't, won't matter. Um, but it was like, no, you know, we'll deal the, do, do this. And so and there was, there was an element of hope for sure. Oh, in yeah. in that conversation of like, this is going to happen. You know, there are no evangelical churches in our, in our city that are affirming, you know, like, but we can be the one. And so that was kind of the hope in the beginning of that process. Mm. Yeah. It's, do you think they they genuinely believed they could work through that or do you think there was an element of just stalling you know like how do we like um i think think they genuinely thought that we could and i I think you know as a a leader who um may not understand their own theology around that from Mm -hmm. from my perspective again um, it's really hard to talk to people when other people in the church come up and say this is wrong um rather than just saying like, well, this is what we're doing and I'm going to affirm it. You know, you you go, well, okay, maybe it is wrong. Let me think about that. And then let me go back to the trans person and say, well, this is how I need you to respond and act. And, Mm. you know, so it, I do think there was a genuine, we can do this, but it real quick, it was pretty evident that it probably wasn't going to work. Yeah. I think this is something I, I, I keep saying to leaders over and over and over again, like, you need to wake up and smell the roses. Like this is going to happen. If you stay open as a church in 2020, I guarantee you're not going to get to whatever 2025. Let's give it a really long term. You know, you're not going to get very much uh, more uh, hours in until someone in your church at some point goes, hi, I'm trans or, Hey, I'm gay. And this is my boyfriend I brought, you know, or whatever. Like this is going to happen at some point, almost regardless of how, um, how unaffirming you are but like uh, more and more churches are doing this kind of like we're affirming Welcome. but we're not gonna but we're not Welcome. gonna tell you uh that actually yeah. we are only affirm in certain contexts which yeah. are that, you can attend a, you can do this you can do that but not this yeah. that was a sticking point really where it ended up uh, being you know i have to leave because like we can't even put it on the website that we're affirming and let people know that you know and so that ultimately that's why we started lovingtheface.com is because churches, this is going to happen, like you said, in, in any church that's going to be open in the next five years, it's going to happen. And they either just can deal with it and kick somebody out, which it seems like is probably more common right now. Um, or if they need help walking through this, that's kind of what we have said we want to do is help a church walk through this. The problem with this is a church who is willing to walk through that usually can kind of handle that. Um, you know, if they're really willing to do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we haven't had a lot of churches reach out to us because, you know, the ones that aren't willing, aren't going to reach out. And the ones that are, I think are kind of working through it. So, yeah, but we're, it, it feels like a lot of people are, are in that middle ground. And, and I think even if you are 
a senior leader that's going, no, I, I, you know, I kind of looked at this. I've read a bunch of books. I'm like, I'm affirming and I'm okay. But then they're like, but yeah, I've got a team of elders that are all like 80 year old white men that are like, you know, not affirming or whatever it is, you know, or maybe like, I've got to figure out how to, you know, it's the whole steering a battleship, right? Versus like a little yeah. speedboat or whatever. It's like, how do I steer this battleship to face a different direction? Because I can turn around on the battleship real quick, but turning this whole thing is going to take months, years, decades, God knows, half the congregation are going to have to die before we kind of like have a, a majority facing a different direction. Um, it, it feels like churches in those positions, I, I, I feel for them on some level, like it's like what you're saying, like, on one level, I get it. This is really hard for you to figure out how to do. You don't want to hurt people. But at the same time, you're actively hurting people by not being affirming and saying, can you just wait until we're affirming? Is that okay? It's a bit like the kind of the Black Lives Matter. Like, look, Black Lives Matter. Yes, but could you just wait? Because it's going to take white people a while to get comfortable with the idea of not shooting people that they're threatened by or feel threatened by, I should say. Um, you know, So maybe you could just wait. And then it's like, yeah, I, I understand. I understand change takes time, but you're killing people. People are literally dying. And it's yeah. the same with, with you know, that analogy holds up still in that trans lives gay lives you know whatever um a whole bunch of different identities lives are actually being yeah. lost because of the church's unwillingness to affirm um and so something i was highlighted to me about a year ago and, and it really shocked me was that many churches and i've done this in several cities now um and it's always held up to be true if i type in into Google, my home city, Manchester, affirming church. The churches that have ads bought for those keywords, none of them are affirming. They're all evangelical churches that are not affirming. They're welcoming. You're welcome to come to our church. But the thing is, and they won't even tell you they're not affirming. You could be there for a year, but it's only yeah. once you start going, hey, I'd like to look after the kids or, hey, I'd like to lead in worship or, hey, I'd like to be in a, a deacon program or something, some sort of leadership suddenly you realize, oh, wait, uh, sorry, you're going to have to go through this discipleship program. We're going to need you to kind of not be gay anymore or whatever it is, right? That's so nefarious. And, 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 and it's horrific, right? But there, yeah. there, there is this, this thing within the church where they're trying to be affirming, but they can't get away from this rock that's kind of holding them to the ground. They've anchored into this one point, you know, that they just they can't move from. The, the, real, the really sad thing is, you know, looking back over the last two years, I've had this really safe space inside my own marriage and family, like immediate family, but the most harm and pain that have been caused have been by the church, by family members that are, you know, religious, and, you know, I go to my work, which is an education entity, and where, you know, you're not talking about religion there, and completely wonderful, fine. People are so supportive. Those who aren't just keep their mouths shut. You know, it's just a wonderful juxtaposition of the church who's supposed to be loving and caring. And, you know, all of these things that Jesus exemplified to us just isn't. Yeah. 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 Do you think there's hope for the church? You know, we talk about this hopefulness and, and I know that, I mean, some churches do this well, like is you can't paint with yeah. the perfectly broad stroke and cover yeah. everything that there are churches that are doing this well, maybe especially within certain mainline traditions, more pr uh, progressive, whatever that means. Sometimes uh, that can be a, a thing, but 
on the whole, do you think there's there's hope for the church, or do you think that that's just not going to change? It's not it's, it's not something that they because they are kind of tethered to that component. You know, you look at people that go, "Well, I love gay people. I really do love gay people," but the bible says and until you you are willing to read the bible differently or put the bible to the side or whatever they they've got a point they've, they've got a bible thing that they're stuck to and and i don't know how they're gonna move beyond that kind of sticking point um do you think there's hope for people that are kind of in more conventional maybe traditional conservative whatever language we put around that fundamental um christianity is, is it lost in this this regards mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think I, I mean I I've yet to see a situation in my life personally people I've interacted with who are affirming of who I am who haven't extricated themselves or somebody else has extricated them from that type of scenario yeah. um, I just I went to um, I don't know if you're familiar with focus on the family here in the United States uh-huh um, I went to school there Wow. in 2003 so i you know i have this background of <laughs> you this should is, um, write to them to see if they'll put up your testimonial yeah i know i know and so i have this background of like uber conservative um and and i've talked to multiple people from that organization the people that went to school there who have since come out and personally coming out the only way is to get yourself out of that environment and the yeah. people who have been supportive of me have slowly you know either been in the process of deconstructing their own faith and what they believe about the bible because if you are somebody who says the bible is the literal word of god and i am not going to stray from it there's no way around this and you're never going to get there so you really do have to be able to put it aside or look at the myriad of resources that are available to say hey you know maybe you can look at this differently and keep sure. it in too so yeah i just don't i don't know i don't know that there's an easy solution yeah i would i i tend to side with like phyllis tickle and brian mclaren like brian mclaren wrote this great book called the great spiritual migration and phyllis tickle said the same thing where she was saying if the church is to survive we are going to have to look so different in the future and really what we're going to have to look like is we're going to have to look like christ Mm. we're going to have to return to before the time when the church became an imperialistic power weapon we're going to have to return back to the time before we had set up ourselves in this patriarchal society we're going to have to return to that these moments of like Jesus at the well, giving power to a woman. We're gonna have to return to these times that Jesus in a crowd of people giving his power away to a bleeding woman who touched him. He gave his power away. So if there is hope for the church, I think the evangelical church is gonna struggle. It's gonna implode on itself or it's gonna become a a faction unto its own. It is barely recognizable. In my view, it's barely recognizable as a Christ-like tradition Mm. in my view anymore. But what we are seeing is this emergence of a new kind which really is an old kind. It's like an original kind of Christ-following, contemplative, really introspective, open church where it's not just we're Christians, period, where it's we can learn from each other. We can pull from all these different 
religions. We can listen to one another. We can listen to these different communities. And I think that's, that's key. If the church is going to survive, it is going to have to open its damn ears and mm. listen to other people. Without judgment. Without judgment. Yeah. And say, I don't know. I don't know this thing. I don't understand what it is like to be a trans woman, but you do. And you have a relationship with the divine that I need to understand because the divine is trans in many ways. The divine is queer. So can we please stop pretending that it's not, you know? And, and that's, that's really where, again, my work did such a better job of saying, you lead out of your experience. Yes. And, and they said to me, you create the communications that go out to staff and, and you tell us what to do because we don't know what to do here. Mm. And the church said, I'll lead, you follow, I'll lead yeah. out of your experience. You tell me what you kind of need and then I'll do the leading, but that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially because let's face it, at the end of the day, um, I mean, like your work probably, for many people, um, as, as much as we have moved on in this world at 2020, this is still a very new phenomenon that we're actually coming to terms with. I mean, the concept of gender is a very kind of new concept on some level, at least as a construct which, you know, is more socially um, constructed and things like that. Like, so the idea that we could have someone that is trans kind of show up to a workplace or show up to a church is a fairly new thing for us to come to terms with and figure out. So there's a good chance that you are the first person at your work to go, hey, guess what? I've got a surprise for you. And they go, oh, this hasn't happened before. And I don't know, Steve, you're an expert on this? No, Barbara? <laughs> you're the expert, you know? Um, there's a good chance you've read more books on this than us. Fairly confident on that. Um, but the church doesn't seem to do that. And I guarantee they haven't read as many books because <laughs> I guarantee that the amount of books they've read is probably like, maybe like one. And it's probably like John MacArthur or something. <laughs> you know, it's, like, yeah. it's probably not the, the go-to one. Uh, I don't know if he's written on this, but I imagine he's got some thoughts. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's a really, it, it highlights again the way the church leads though. It presumes to be the answer person even when it isn't. So even yeah. when it doesn't know, it, it has to go, well, I am the one that needs to know. I'm the one that needs to lead. So, and it does what it did to you, uh, Naya. It, it just says, you wait. You wait there and we'll go figure it out and we'll come back and let you know how it works. And then you can, you know, post something on social media. Then you can say something to the church. Then you can, um, because it needs to have its kind of ducks in a row or whatever that looks like. Um, failing to see that the ducks it's trying to line up are people, you know, and, and right. has very real tangible um, things. And it's really sad that, the, you know, that I don't like this kind of like the Christian should have things together better than the world. But certainly if you're a Christian with that concept, it is really sad that they're doing so poorly in these areas. Right. I mean, it's really crushing. Um, yeah, no, I, and I am, I'm really sorry that that's being experienced. I'm not surprised. And, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I just am not remotely surprised. I think, you know, very few churches are equipped. I think maybe more progressive churches, ones that are following the kind of the progressive path of maybe something like um, Richard Rohr's, you know, yeah. collective there, you know, Brian McLaren is a great example. These kind of people probably would have been a better place for you to have had this experience. And if, I'm sure if you'd gone to them, they probably would have gone, hey, actually, we are kind of experts on this on some level. And yeah. we're really willing to work with you and help you. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it does. It, it gives me... Um, I find it hard to hope for, for that 
component of church as well and, and i do wonder if it is just a thing of like a bit like your old racist grandma you know you go oh, she's probably just gonna die racist and on that level the world will become less racist at some point yeah super yeah. unfortunate yeah. but yeah that's... you know or yeah. um and yeah i i don't know i don't see the evangelical church massively changing its mind um anytime soon it's it's, it's a tough one yeah i think that you the hope for it is I would hope that we'd be able to become a more universal church. And I think even saying that, if an evangelical like heard that, it's like universal, I clutch my pearls, <laughs> no. But I think that that, I think that's really what Jesus was telling us. I mean, Jesus was, I, and I think I, I would, I would lose all hope in the church and in Christianity itself if it weren't for the person of Jesus. He was such a good teacher. I mean, he was a masterful teacher and he did teach us things that if we listen and if we watch what he did, especially if we're from this tradition, what I would say is if we want the Christian tradition to society, to survive, we need to start teaching out of the book of John and believing what John said about Jesus. Because there's a lot of interesting things about John too that are very feminine, and there are there are very just radical things about that particular book that if you want to understand the real deep love of true spirituality, you can find it in that space between John's head and Jesus' breast. Mm. Like in my purview, that's where you can find it. Yeah. And to be fair, as a trans woman, with all this trauma associated with the church now, I don't care if Katie's the one up there preaching in a church structure, I'm not going to be there at yeah. this point. Yeah. It, it sounds to me that, you know, a lot of people that deconstruct uh, for um, myriads of reasons um, deconstruct in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, but it certainly sounds, certainly for you, Katie, that you have in your deconstruction stage very true to your Christian roots. On some level, you've held onto the person of Christ, the teachings of Christ. Um, has that been um, the same for you as well, uh, Nia? Uh, or do yeah, you? Do I yeah, I think I think it has, you know, I because my faith has always been very guttural and very much on a level of I know that love is is a force in the world that does something and I can find the scriptures that say God is love and I can make that connection and that's always kind of how simple I guess I I have been in my faith. And so it the deconstruction wasn't as um you know, there was a lot of pieces to it, but the, the actual theological elements and saying like the Christian tradition says this versus this, you know, for me, it was my, I always know that this is my faith. Jesus was a person that is written about clearly and the things that he espoused work in the world and, you know, reaching out to marginalized people and um, loving people work even when they don't love you back. And so, I, I would say, you know, if somebody asks me about my Christian faith, my Christian right now, I, you know, I'd have a lot of questions about what that meant before I answered that question. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think the root of it is that has always been the same for me. And yeah. just now I, you know, I certainly would be without judgment open to, you know, all sorts of other faiths and other ways of life that mm. show that point to the same, you know, kind of love and acceptance. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's very common for people to deconstruct to, to start exploring within other mechanisms. And some put Christianity to the side entirely that, that the, the 
the negative connotations within that allow them to explore what it looks like to love themselves, love the others and love whatever they believe might be beyond those two components um, outside of a, a context of the words God, Christian, Jesus, any of that kind of stuff. Like they just, it's just too much, put it to the side. Um, and I guess it, it always intrigues me, people that have gone through quite painful processes within church that, that do hold on to that. Um, uh, it's, it's always fascinating to me. And so I, I was just wondering, you know, yeah. what it was that you, you kind of clung to. And I guess another component I find interesting is I found frequently many people will go through, you know, some sort of atheism, agnosticism and things like that. But, um, but I found people that have a charismatic background, they often struggle to completely put god on the shelf uh, yeah. because they've had these kind of like wild experiences or very emotionally driven and charged kind yeah. of like connections to god um that are harder at times to put on the shelf and uh, yeah I, guess that's a I, I can completely relate to that you know we watched the movie jesus camp um at some point <laughs> i don't know where it was but you know the the grotesque nature of watching five and six and ten year olds you know be slain in the spirit as it as it's called and just like all of this stuff you go like oh yeah i experienced all of this stuff but there was there was some through line that was like real yeah. in all of that and and it's really hard to let it go and I, for me it's it's easy for me to let go of the labels of whatever mm -hmm. that is called and um i think it kind of uh through the process that's been the hardest thing to get to is you know i don't need to call these this certain thing um, because it's the same thing in my mind, whatever it is. And mm. those experiences are, they are hard to let go of because of those charismatic, you know, there were, there was something that was real, you know, no matter what all the fake emotionally driven, you know, services and things that I was involved in, something I, I found in that was, was true. Yeah. Um, and so it is, it's hard to just abandon it completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's beautiful though to have these kind of um, experiences that yeah we're kind of like uh, that one's over there on the shelf under like have no idea what the hell that was <laughs> but it's on a shelf still and I like it yeah. and it's nice yeah. I like looking at it and going oh yeah that was good but yeah. I don't know what the hell it is anymore um, there's something about that that I think is is quite beautiful and and being able to go nope I don't know like I think in some ways is one of the most um, beautiful mystical spiritual uh, it, authentic engagements with faith, you know, to be able to look at something and go, I have no idea, but it's meaningful on some level to me for some reason. And I can't let it go or I can't just explain it away. I can kind of explain it away a little bit, yeah. but actually yeah. at the same time, I'm like, ah, oh, there's something more, there's something deeper. And I, I love that. It's beautiful. I, um, yeah. I think, I, I think fortunately early on too, in, in both of our kind of deconstruction process, you know, we were introduced by Roar and others to transcend and include and, you know, really Ken being Wilber. able to, yeah, Ken Wilber, re really being able to include those parts that, you know, I, I attended focus on the family in college and, you know, I had this charismatic upbringing and these are things that made me who I am to this point. And, mm -hmm. you know, now I get to move forward from there. So I think that was super helpful mm -hmm. in, yeah. in some of the construction. Yeah, I think too, like, I'm a mystical person. I have been since I was little. I have memories of myself holding hands with Jesus in my bed, which is like a really fun story. And I, I processed it through EMDR, which was awesome. EMDR therapy is great. And, <laughs> and anyone who has a trauma background should probably give it a try, I would say. But um, as a mystical person, trying to then line up, okay, 
what is happening inside of my mystical experiences and what's now happening with the trauma that I've endured and how, how often did those two things intersect with each other? But I, I'm fortunate because I'm going to the living school, which is center for action and contemplation, Richard Rohr's organization school. And, um, uh, Barbara Holmes is one of the teachers and she is coming from a more of like an African, um, communal, um, kind of spirituality and the things that she is teaching us about are these beautiful ways that tribal communities describe mystical experiences and when we have personal mystical experiences they don't make a lot of sense to us but these tribes have like put structures around the mystical experiences that they have as individuals and as a community and they support those mystical experiences so that they can say hey this is kind of what's happening to you and instead of telling you what to do with that we're going to support you as you move through these mystical experiences wow. and once again here's communities of people that we have othered to say you're you're savage almost in the way that you perform rites and rituals and have sure. communal mystical experiences. But these communities teach us so much about what it means to be connected to the divine. But we don't know about those because in our Western white minds, we've gone, no, I mean, that's just like crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> They're really, they've created structures yeah, to make our minds make sense because our minds want to do this. Our hearts want to do this. And so they've created the structures over thousands of years that make sense of a mystical experience. This is, I guess this is the beauty of um, Ken Wilber again. And you know, that concept of it works in so many different uh, concepts and it's shown again and again and again in human psychological development that like, um, if you don't transcend and include, if you only transcend, you're going to have to go back and do some integration work at some point. Um, or work was uh, like shadow work and stuff, doesn't he? Um, yeah. But like, um, but the, I think that's what we're looking at there. You can look at something like, um, you know, tribal communities that have been engaging mystically with, with the divine in certain ways and doing inner work in certain ways for thousands of years and have created these frameworks. And then we come in with a very dualistic black and white approach and go, well, we've got, you know, vacuum cleaners and cars. So we're obviously better. That's wrong. So moving on. And it's like, okay, yes. Kind of like vacuum cleaners, kind of like cars. I agree. Great. Transcend. You know, I agree. Let's clean our apartment, you know, with the vacuum cleaner. Better model. Great. But could we include anything from this? Could we bring some of those mystical kind of frameworks? Could we bring some, and maybe, and develop on them, right? I mean, they've been developing for thousands of years. There's nothing to say that we cannot be a part of that tradition to develop for a thousand and one years. But um, it's this extremism, this black and white kind of component that writes off anything different because we have it right. And there's only one right answer anyway. It's this finality, right? As though that what I believe right now is finally true. God forbids, because I thought that like 20 minutes ago when I believed something different, you know? So, <laughs> right. um, and so yeah. I think it's, it's a beautiful thing that we have to realize that we're, we're constantly doing this transcending, um, but we're not naturally always including. And I think we have to be very intentional about the inclusion um, or we do that, miss out on a lot. That, you know, I think that's the story of deconstruction for a lot of people is that, you know, as soon as you look outside the box, that alarm bell goes off in your head. They told me if I look outside the box, everything outside the box is going to lead me astray. And so we have this fight. But then the identity piece of this is the same. It's like I 
feel this. I'm looking over here. I'm seeing all this data set that's, that says what I feel is true. But I also was told as soon as I look at that, it's wrong and, and because it's outside. And so the self-doubt, the self-shame, the self-hatred that you deal with that I did from an evangelical background coming out is like, oh my goodness, it was so hard to wade through. Um, and, and honestly, I was only able to do it with the help of Amber Cantorna's book about, you know, helping uh, the gay Christian's guide to coming out. She had parents who worked at Focus on the Family and went through similar things. Wow. And, you know, it's just a matter of cutting through all of that shame and that guilt to trust your own self and to say, I am trustworthy, essentially, mm-hmm. um, outside of this cube that says everything outside of it is not. And they're going to tell you they are even, so you can't believe it. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a tough place to get to uh, inside of an evangelical community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see that again and again, and, and probably less often in, in that concept of someone that's trans coming out, but like just people that are like, I don't believe in uh, hell being a place of torment anymore. And then they're right. still waking up in a puddle of sweat 12 years later because they're having nightmares that like they might, be wrong and maybe god will send them to hell and it's like so that level of indoctrination of like if you don't fit in the box just right there's a god with a big stick waiting and he will wail on you with that stick um you know that's the the, the it's it's extremely traumatic to to come out of that and and you can't not in the back of your head go oh yeah so where is the god with a big stick right, right. yeah i mean the neurons are are there and the, the roads of the neurons have been created you know so long ago and so frequently that it it, it is still there i mean it's still there for me obviously too mm-hmm. just being in that background for so long um, there are definitely moments in my life where I'm just like, wait a minute, what? But there are so few and far between anymore. It's so, you know, so freeing um, that it's easy to be able to say, no, I, I trust myself in this moment. Yeah. Um, and no, that's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And I think that that's a long journey for a lot of people. Um, it's an ongoing journey. Like you said, you still have those niggles every now and again, but they're fewer and, you know, further between or, or whatever that looks like. So tell me about um, Love in the Face. I want to make sure I respect your time. We probably got about 20 minutes tops. Um, I, I don't want to keep you going for too long, but tell me about what you're doing now. Um, is this a venture that you're both a part of? I think you, I remember both your Instagram handles being kind of tagged within it. And so what's what's the heart behind what you're doing now? Yeah, um, Love in the Face, I think was developed just out of uh, necessity. Um, you know, people, uh, because I am, I'm an HR director for my institution and so highly visible and you are correct, the first trans person in my organization. Um, so, you know, a lot of people were, uh, I think, giving my name to family and friends who had like mostly trans children um, that were struggling, you know, how do we get support in the school system? How, you know, how do we deal with this? And so just reaching out to me directly and saying like, I'm not really sure what to do. So. Um, you know, as Katie and I talked, I think there is also a big component of spousal support that is necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, that's the other big piece that people have reached out to us and Katie specifically for, you know, how I, I don't, and, and mostly it's the trans person reaching out, like, can you talk to my spouse? Like, is your supportive spouse? Like, can you convince them? Which, 
Katie's very good at saying you can't do you can't do that. <laughs> but I can certainly talk to that. But, you know, a lot of these people are coming from theological backgrounds, which Katie has, and so it's a good conversation for her to have. So we just thought, uh, you know, love in the face is really a um, our love letter to trans people, LGBTQ people who are struggling in their families, uh, in their workspaces, in their churches. And I've done, you know, a lot of um, workplace consulting and, and some speaking. And um, obviously the church experience that we just described to you has given us a good lens on what maybe should happen and what maybe shouldn't in a church uh, experience like that. Um, and then we also are just providing free mentoring to trans people, whatever that means. You know, it's, you know, we're not a suicide hotline. You know, there's definitely those places to go. Uh, but if you just need to speak to somebody who's been through this, especially with an evangelical background, like we know, mm. we know the steps that it took us to get to where we are, where we're very happy with ourselves and who we are. Um, yeah, so I think just allowing other people into that is try is kind of what we're what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Um, yeah, the matrix for people who are coming out and spouses and their immediate family needs to be so strong that net of safety and security and we would we would have hoped that would have been our extended families and our church and i remember saying to our extended families you know the only way we're going to make this through through this is to have a strong net of love and thankfully we did we have this beautiful group of women that came alongside of us and literally every day we're like you can get out of your bed you can keep moving. You can keep going. We'll sit beside you. We'll make sure that you know that you're beautiful, that you're loved, that you're taken care of, that God still sees you, that we'll pray for you when you can't pray for yourself. We will hold you up. We have this beautiful web of women who did that for us. And so as kids, especially as kids are coming out early and earlier and earlier, and then other people are coming out later and later in their life, there seems to be this like dual end of life. We want to help extended family members. I mean, my heart is really, I want to help extended family members, churches to know, like you can be the web of support that these people mm. need. You don't have to be all in right away on like, I get it. And my theology is fine. And I'm taking care of it. And I'm like, 100% on it. You do have to be hundred percent all in on love. Mm. That's it. That's all you have to do. You have to go, I love this person. And love means giving them back to themselves. So that requires me to listen and it requires me to sit and cry and it requires me to be what they can't be right now, period. It's not, it is the most difficult thing you will ever do and the least difficult thing you will ever do all at the same time. And, and that web of support needs a web of support to say you yeah. you can keep doing this you can keep standing up to your friends who are going oh well i'll pray for your son because they're going to hell and you, you can say oh actually here's the script that i would like to say mm -hmm. uh don't you don't need to uh or pray that yes she comes more into the knowledge of herself like there are there are things that we can do to help equip people to support their trans family members and friends and church members that are coming out that are just really simple things that are hard to put into practice when you're all by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're seeing too, I think across the country, um, the trans uh, 
culture war, if you will, um, is ramping up here in America and it has been ramped up for the past few years because, you know, the gay marriage kind of debate was ended with, you know, that kind of equality. And so we're turned, turning to this um, transgender thing and we're making laws, you know, in Iowa, where we live, we have a pretty progressive law on the books from 2007 that protects gender identity and employment and housing and stuff like that. Mm. They, they introduced the law to pull gender identity out of the civil rights protections this year, which is baffling to me and, you know, caused us to, I actually emailed everybody who sponsored that bill and said, I would love to sit down with you because you're, you're making it so people can fire me in this state now mm -hmm. by putting this law. And, and we're seeing that across the country, just everywhere right now that it's just yeah. this, this is our new, you know, it seems like evangelical Christianity is our new battleground and we are not going to give an inch and we're going to make sure that, you know, all of these things are not happening that we think are terrible. Yeah. And to be honest, having those conversations with those legislators, it was like, they, they went, Oh, I, I didn't even know. Like I've never even heard of a trans person who is married and has five kids and they're in a loving, you know, relationship. Like, do you want to come over for dinner? Like those are the kind of things that people are saying because they're, they're saying these things out of a gut reaction to the script, their yeah. script that they have had. And um, so I think our goal is to break down some of those uh, norms that people see in their own lives of this is what trans is, you know, this is what it means to be gay and trans in the church. Um, and so we're just going to go with those because those are the scripts. And, and I think our goal is to say, no, that, that's not, that's not mm -hmm. right. And, and here are the alternative scripts that you can yeah. look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, I, I have the, it's a big luxury. I mean, we have our own shit going on in the UK, but it's a big luxury to be able to look across at America. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, <laughs> us too. Yeah. yeah no, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I think a lot of people, um, but it, it, it intrigues me. Um, there seems to be a dynamic when we look at kind of progressive kind of ideology and, 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 um, laws being set and things like that. Um, that when you have set in stone the, the perfect ideal like way of life and it's set somewhere in stone and that stone has been written 3,500 years ago, um, you're always going to be fighting any move forwards because you're wanting to move backwards. And I think that's a natural component within the church. Um, for what we talked about, those people that are like literalists, that that's what the Bible says. And I can't even, even if that Bible is the word of God, I can't read it in a different way than mm -hmm. this way that my pastor or my denomination or whatever is this has, has allowed me to. Um, it feels like you would you would think what, what what I've experienced in the UK. So we we think see something like um, gay rights, big issue. Everyone's fighting over it. Oh, you know it'll be the end of society. Blah blah blah. Gay rights pass. Nothing happens. It's totally fine. Society moves on. Nobody has any issues at all, and we move on. And actually, for the most part, you know, a lot of evangelical churches would say, say, oh, gay being gay is a sin, and it's you know eroding the culture and the society whatever. but i don't know any churches that are particularly fighting for that to change in government or whatever they kind of just sort of like oh. and there seems to be an element of society that the way human organizations work just from an anthropological level is that we fight things that we're scared of there's a narrative of like oh if you let black people marry white people then society will end and then black people start marrying white people and you go oh uh, this is just basically the same as normal people like you know, white and white and black and black but it's just black and white oh 
Okay, cool. And once that fear, once that that scare, fear mongering kind of thing doesn't pan out, people kind of just move on. Um, it feels like there's something in the American kind of makeup, whatever that is, the the hodgepodge of what Americanity is, um, that kind of Christianity blurred with kind of the patriotic, nationalistic kind of empire of of American um, kind of whatever that is. Um, Kevin Miller called it perfectly when he said it's J E S U S A. You know, it, it feels like there's not a moving on. So, you know, gay rights kind of across the board, I think for the most part, federally are kind of there that battles lost. As far as I know, you know, the evil gays haven't like, you know, started eating children and doing blood right. sacrifices yeah. and all. I don't know what they were going to do, but there was some fear that yeah. they were going to do something. Yeah. None of that's happened. Mm-hmm. And yet it doesn't feel that, um, that at least kind of that, that wing of America, whatever that is, the, the, the right, the conservative, the evangelical, the whatever group, I'm, I'm sure many groups fall into that category. They don't seem to have gone, oh, this isn't so bad. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. um they they are still deeply fighting that on a legislational level like what do you think it is about the kind of the makeup of that's maybe quite unique to america in some ways and maybe other countries around the world are, are very like this as well I, I don't know um but it doesn't seem to be that as much over in europe in my experience so we don't seem to be fighting you know abortion gosh people in the uk are not fighting for over abortion right. rights and i'm like gosh that's a big one in america right um whatever you believe you know like um it's just like oh that got lost and actually life's moving on we're not getting any earthquakes we're not on a fault line so that's helpful um you know we're not um that's a a tough question i mean you know uh, you asked me that 20 years ago and i i don't know i think you know people have different opinions about different things and that's just how it is but now i think there's actually a different reality that's being seen by some people that just says this is what is happening and so I have to fight against it. A a great example of this is I just read Samantha Allen's book Real Queer America um, LGBT stories from red states so kind of the conservative states. Yeah so it it, she talked about a lot of different things but one of the stories was about some some legislation in Texas which you know conservative of conservative in America And what they were doing was trying to, again, rescind a law that had been passed to protect trans people uh, to go into the restroom of their gender identity. They were trying to rescind that. And they were running ads showing a little girl enter the restroom and a man follow her into the restroom. Mm -hmm. And it's just this alternate reality that people have decided to sequester themselves in. We watched... uh, behind the curve the flat earth documentary late recently it it was brilliant and it was such a good insight into what is actually happening in the u.s where people are just complete alternate reality you get so far away from what actually is reality that you have to uphold the the most craziest things in order to keep the rest of this standing Mm -hmm. and i think we're seeing that in in especially something like this where men following girls into women's restroom is not a trans problem you know like i go into restrooms i don't want to see anybody i don't like i am more scared to go into the restroom than anybody else so i don't want to talk to people in the restroom like i just want to go to the bathroom um and and i don't i just think people really believe that narrative that's being shown to them until you sit down with them and say like you don't understand that if you make people 
go into the restroom that, you know, they, the, the gender they were, the sex they were assigned at birth, you now have trans men who have full beards, fully masculine, going into women's restrooms because your law says that they have to. Mm -hmm. And that's to, like, it, you know, we said that to our legislators and they were like, oh. We never thought oh, of that. trans men, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about trans men, tell me about this. <laughs> like, it's just this alternate reality yeah. from my perspective that people just are sunk into. Yeah, I think it's true too. Like, if you look at spiral dynamics and you look at where the United States is, just like, and if you look at human development, like we're like somewhere between 15 and 21 years old, you know, like we're in our like adolescence as a country. And so like, you remember like what a pain in the ass you were when you were, I mean, maybe you weren't, but I know I was insufferable. Oh, I still am, but yeah. <laughs> like an insufferable 20 year old who's like, I know, you know, and when, when I was 20, that was like 9-11 was happening. There were all of these protests, you know? And so that was, it was a huge, and I was, uh, definitely on the wrong side of history from my perspective now in that moment. But I was an insufferable 20 year old that goes, this is right. I know it's right. Yeah. I don't care what anyone else says. I'm digging my heels in. So I think collectively, just as a society, we're an adolescent, we're very yeah. young, you know? And so that's part of it. And then I think on personal levels, especially when you get to the evangelical church, you are taught to hate yourself. You are taught that God hates you. You are taught that yeah. you are dirty. You are taught that God, God's self, sacrificed God's own child to meet God's own bar of perfection. Like, as a kid growing up in that environment, your thought is, if I don't do this absolutely perfectly, God himself will murder me. Like, that's what you think. Yeah. And so that's real high stakes. You know, I just started a job in the public sector, secular sector, and I, I was so nervous all the time, all the time making any tiny mistake. And I remember looking at my coworker one day and going, she was like, it's cool if you make a mistake, it's no big deal. And I go, oh, you don't understand. In my last job, if I made a mistake, somebody's going to hell. Like that is in my body i feel triggered when yeah. i make mistakes because before when i made a mistake it meant someone was going to hell for eternity that's so funny that's high stakes. terrifying but funny yeah, it is. terrifyingly high stakes and then when you yeah. realize that god is a god of love and the stakes are so much lower mm. right and in some ways so much higher because it's real you know, that people are really dying. People are dying by suicide. People are killing each other in the streets. And we can have an effect on that right now. Yeah, It's a lot easier to focus on hell that is like a construct in our minds instead yeah. of saying, I can intervene right now. Yeah. So it's a lot different yeah. and harder in some ways. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's really insightful. I, I, I appreciate you guys sharing about that because it, it's, it's a problem in the UK as well. Don't get me wrong. And we are yeah. swinging. We, it feels like we're, we're in our take a step back, right? And that two step yeah. forward, one step back, we're in a step back season the last kind of decade or so. Um, but yeah, it just, it feels like on, on the, and maybe it's the theatrics of America. I don't know what it is, but it feels like it's like, okay, the world has this problem, but welcome to America who's putting on a play about the problem. Uh, or, you know, it's just like, we've got the problem, the musical, or, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. 
And so it's just really interesting. But I think the spiral dynamic component of that is you are seeing these components of these this these warring, uh, both fairly immature as well. You know, even at the later like postmodern, maybe modern, it would be more realistic. But even the people that are at postmodern still not really transcending dualism, still demonizing the other, still fighting back and forth on this. So it's still us and them and all of those components and. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. So that's no, really yeah, intriguing. Yeah, I, I think here too, you see, you know, you know, we had eight years of President Obama, who was liberal in the mm. uh, political sense, and you know, passing gay marriage reform and healthcare reform and all of these things, and it just seemed like there was this big breath out, and then now there's this quick expansion or breath back contraction. in contraction, contraction of like, oh goodness, now we need to take care of all of these atrocities, and I think part of the um, the thing of being trans in America, I, there's a good movie on Netflix in the U.S. called Disclosure, and there's um, it, it's all trans people in Hollywood and talking about trans representation on screen. And one of the things that um, they talk about on there is, uh, you know, the more you disclose, which we're seeing with in the last 15 years, people feeling safe in an environment where you can get married when you're gay to come out. Um, so more people saying, I am gay, I am queer, I am trans. And the more you disclose, the more chance you have of getting beat up on the street. And so it's this kind of catch 22 of, you know, a bunch of people seem to be doing this at the same time and coming to the same because there was this environment of safety, you know, before our recent yeah. administration. And everybody was like, oh, no, we have to beat these people back into their boxes and into their closets because there's too many of them now. It's like whack-a-mole and they're losing the game, right. you know? Um, so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a catch-22 for people who feel safe enough to come out, but then do you disclose because it just makes you that more, much more visible to be derided. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that speaks all the more to how important what you're doing is, um, where, I mean, gosh, it's a very, very scary and terrifying process, I imagine, um, for anyone, never mind when you add that extra layer of being in that evangelical world or background, at least having that kind of the fear, the, the God up in the sky that's freaking out about, you know, like you go into hell or sending other people to hell, you know, that stuff is, is intense. And so uh, I'm, I'm really thankful that there are people like both of you that are putting out resources, helping people, willing to sit with people and, and chat with them and mentor them and talk to their family. And that's, a, that's astonishing uh, what you're doing. And that's, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing um, for sure. Is there a way that, um, so people watching this will definitely want to check out your stuff. So yeah. you are, is it love in the face? Is that yeah, at love in the face on Instagram and then okay. loveintheface.com. Yeah. Uh, and then they can find us on our own Instagram handles too. I'm uh, at finding.nia. Um, and I'll have my Kickstarter up there as well. I, I will give another oh, yeah. plug for, I'll give another plug for EMDR therapy because that is <laughs> that is really what has, you know, been the life for us and, and the processing of, of some of this trauma. And that's mm. what the Kickstarter has kind of come out of, but or what has come out uh, into this new Kickstarter book. So, but that is definitely um for people with backgrounds of trauma and religious trauma in particular it's been awesome. super helpful so um, the kickstarter when's that going live because this will probably come out in a couple of weeks i'm assuming it'll yeah. be out by then yeah, yeah okay yeah. so it's out when people are listening to this watching this yeah. it's out there's a link in the show notes in the youtube or, or, or yeah. in the podcast so I'll, yeah. I'll make sure i get a link from you as well yeah. 
Um, awesome, cool. And is there a way people can support what you're doing? Like, do you guys have a Patreon or something like that? Or we don't right now. We're just kind okay. of doing this, you know, as we can, and as we can, um, we have time to go speak and you know go to consult with churches if they ask us, and sure. you know mentor folks. Um, so we don't have that ability for people right now. Maybe in the future, our you know one of the long term goals for me is to develop this network of mentors for trans and LGBT people um, that not just myself and Katie, but others who have gone through the same thing and, and really want to mentor other people. So to have that ability down the road, I think will be um, helpful, um, but we're not, not there right now. Oh, that's cool. That's great. I mean, that that's, it's, makes it all the more beautiful, like, like we were talking about, right? The, the money ties and things like that and being in yeah. other people's pockets. That's a beautiful thing that you're going, we're just doing this because we, we really believe in helping people and yeah, we'll yeah. see what it looks like so no but thank you so much i appreciate you guys taking time to chat for i know two hour podcast isn't everyone's cup of tea so i appreciate oh, you uh, taking the time to chat and i loved hearing your stories getting to know you both i uh, really enjoyed it and maybe we'll do another chat at some point as well it'd be good yeah, um, yeah, yeah we've got so much more though we got we could go oh okay. yeah <laughs> i bet we, there's there's a hundred different directions we could have gone that i was okay. like bite your tongue phil let's keep on one track at a time and so yeah, no, it'd be great okay. to be on again and we can. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, love you guys. And thank you so much. Yeah. I'll let you guys know when it goes live and all of that. So yeah. Awesome. Great. All right. Bye guys. Bye. So that was Nia and Katie Kiramonte. What a beautiful, beautiful couple, amazing heart to help people and, and to share all the wisdom and, and, and grace and love that has been developed in that relationship on their journey um, with the world and to help people um, who are going through um, similar processes and, and, and help them understand what's going on and, and, and give voice to what's going on and help them realize how they can love in the face of all kinds of different situations. Um, and so do check them out. I would also really encourage you check out Nia's project that she's got going on. It's called The Story of Nib, and it is a new book that is full of stories from her life, um, and it is full of beautiful illustrations, and it's on Kickstarter right now, and they need your support. And um, you can find it by searching uh, for either Finding Nia or The Story of Nib, N-I-B. Again, I'll put the link to it in the show note and uh, YouTube, but typing either of those keywords into Kickstarter will bring it up. Um, and what Nia has said to me is that if anyone um, supports them at any pledge level, so, you know, Kickstarter, you pledge to, you know, receive a digital copy of the book or a physical copy or, you know, like all the kind of like different tiers and it always gets kind of outrageous near the top. And um, she has said that if people pledge and then message her at finding.nia and say that you heard about this opportunity and about the book on the Phil Drysdale show, you will be entered to win an upgrade to the top package, which is worth $350. And, and that is a really cool package. Um, there's all kinds of different things. You win multiple copies of the book. You can win digital prints and digital animations. You get mentioned by name in the book. Um, and you even get the opportunity to write a, a personal dedication um, in the book. And so um, I would encourage you, if this is something that you're passionate about, if this is something you feel is important, um, which, you know, 
I, I hope listening to this podcast, it has hammered home in you that, that this is a really important thing that, that people need to hear that they belong, that they, um, that they have their, their own place and their own voice, um, in this, in this world. And, um, and, and that's a powerful theme that runs uh, through this book. And so do go check out the project. It's called The Story of Nib, N-I-B. So do check that out. All right, you know the drill. Other things to check out, thedeconstructionnetwork.com, a place to connect with other people that are going through these journeys of deconstructing faith in your local area. Hopefully after COVID, don't go and like cough in their face, you know, um, but hopefully, once all this blows over, if it ever blows over, we'll get there, people. Don't panic. We're, we're getting there. Um, I think, I'm not sure. Hopefully we're getting there. Once it blows over, the deconstructionnetwork.com is a great place to connect with people who are going through deconstruction, going through evolving faith in your local area. You don't have to do this alone. There's over, I think, 1,700 people on the site so far. Um, it's growing every day by dozens. Um, and so do check it out. It's a great resource. It's a free resource. There's no charge at all to it. Thegracecourse.com, again, another free resource. There's a whole bunch of different teachings on there about all sorts of different topics from a lens of Christianity and, and coming out of Christianity or evolving in Christianity. Um, there's all sorts of uh, fascinating topics um, that you can explore there. Again, absolutely free. And if you, if you appreciate these resources that are free, if you appreciate that you can reach out to me and connect with me anytime and talk with me, I talk with people all day about helping them process their deconstruction. Um, if you appreciate these podcasts and these shows that are coming out for free, you can become a Patreon or a partner um, at phildrysdale.com slash partner or at Patreon slash phildrysdale. For as little as $5 a month, you can support what I'm doing and it means a huge deal because I do this free full time. I have no other income and so it, it really does make a huge difference. It means I can pay the bills. It means I can eat foods. Um, and sometimes I'd like to eat nicer food and so if, if you want to chuck an extra five bucks to me that would be amazing um, as a thank you you get access to a private discussion group um, where we have all kinds of fascinating discussions um, and we also do a monthly zoom call and there's some other perks if uh, if you go for higher options um, some skypes and different things like that with me um, but yeah there's never any obligation, there's any, ever any need for anyone to partner with me. Please never feel obligated or feel guilty about reaching out to me and asking me questions and talking to me for hours on end. You never need to pay me or anything like that. We've all been burned enough by, um, by our different institutional backgrounds constantly asking us for money. And so I am not doing that. Trust me, I have no interest in um, requiring money from anyone. But if you want to support what I'm doing, want to help me do it for free and full time, um, I really appreciate that. And so again, you can do that at phildrysdale.com slash partner or patreon.com slash phildrysdale. All right, that's enough rambling from me. I will see you next time. Next week, um, we've got some amazing guests. We've got um, Ashley from Dissology and we've got Will Thorpe from Heretic Theology. Some great interviews. I think you're going to love them. And so I will see you next Monday for the next one.